Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Now the whole Tanya, entire Tanya is based on the verse. To understand the verse... That to be Jewish, Moshe is telling the Jewish people that to be Jewish is something that's very near to you. This thing, this item which refers to the Torah and the mitzvot is something that's very near and dear to you, very close to you, in your mouth, in your heart, to do. And levavcha doesn't only mean in thought, levavcha also means emotions, feelings. Now, that be explained, how can you say that to have a feeling, a connection, a conscious connection to godliness is something that's something that's very near and dear to you? We know how difficult it is when we are naturally materialistic. And he said, he explained that what type of emotion are we talking about? We're talking about a type of emotion that leads to action. A emotion, an emotion, just a pure emotion, that's truly not dear and near to each and every one. Not everyone is fine-tuned. Not everyone is so spiritual, so spiritually aware. But uh, an emotion that leads to action, to behavior, that's something that's near and dear to everyone. In other words, an intellectual emotion, an emotion based on understanding and awareness and knowledge, knowing that the Jewish way of life and a life of Torah and mitzvah through the discipline of Torah and mitzvah, the discipline of Judaism. It's like a, it's like a spiritual diet. A disciplined life is something that's, that makes sense. It's something that's consistent. It's something that's genuine. It's something that's authentic. That's an, an understanding that everyone can come, come to that realization. And based on that realization, this will lead you to behavior change. You'll think a certain way. You'll live a certain way. You'll speak a certain way. And you'll act a certain way. And he continued that then there are those who can't even accomplish that, can't even achieve that. They're not capable of an intellectual emotion or intellectual awareness. They just don't have the capacity or the zitzvlesh or the... But even for them, it's very near and dear to commit themselves to a Jewish life because based on the natural love, the inherent love, innate love that each and every Jew is born with. Automatically, you're born to a Jewish mother, you inherit a Jewish soul, you inherit Jewish faith, you have that connection. And therefore, for a Jew, a Jew would rather give up his life than be disconnected from God, and it's simply not an option. And based on that inherent love, it's not a love they have to create, it's there, it's innate, you just have to tap into it. And that's something that's near and dear to each and every Jew. To be true to yourself, to be natural, to be true to yourself. So, now the Alter Rebbe is going to explain in the next few chapters, the emphasis in the verse is la'asoysoy, to do, to act. In other words, what is the main emphasis? The main emphasis is the action, not the emotion. It's not that we're acting in order to be able to develop an emotion. Not that the action is the means and the emotion is the end. On the contrary, the end is la to do the mitzvah, to physically fulfill the mitzvah, to do the deed. 
the emotion is necessary in order, that's the means to the end. In order to be able to fulfill the mitzvah, as he explained earlier, in order to do the mitzvah, properly, you have to do, you have to, you need the emotion. So he's going to explain that, why the emphasis on action? Why not the emphasis on emotion? Why the emphasis on action? Okay, page 452, the first paragraph. Let us elucidate still further the term, quote, that you may do it, end quote, in the verse, for the matter is very near to you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Whereas mentioned, the climax of the verse is its emphasis on action. Why is action the end result, the ultimate goal and purpose here? Why is action the most important thing? You would think that religiosity, religiosity is more the emotion, the inner, the internal, the spiritual, the intensity, the intent. Why, why the emphasis on action? The Torah places such an emphasis on action. That's, that's all that matters. The ultimate thing that matters is action. And when it comes to action, there is no difference between the Bain and the end of Sabbath. When it comes to internal emotions or sensitivity or intensity or spirituality or sensitivity, there's a huge gap between the tzaddik, the one or two in every generation, the one who has completely mastered, a master of the soul, a person who has completely mastered and has access to his soul. Most of us don't have, don't have that mastery or that access to the soul could be actually quite frustrating because we don't speak the language of the soul and it's very difficult to get in touch with the soul and it's very difficult to speak the language of the soul and it's like very vague for us and very nebulous and it's, 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 it's very frustrating but when it comes to action the Torah expects each and every one of us to be able to behave perfectly to lead a disciplined life and to always at all times 7, 24-7 to always think appropriately think Jewish speak appropriately, speak Jewish and act appropriately act. so the emphasis is on the action and the question is, we need the explanation why is the emphasis on the action? shouldn't the emphasis be on this inner, on this spirit? that's, that's number one, second okay. Let us also understand, at least in a very small measure, the purpose in creating Benonim, to be and remain forever on the level of Benonim. For as explained in chapter 14, the souls of the Benonim are usually incapable of rising to the level of Tzaddik through their own will and effort. They were created to be Benonim. Also, the purpose of their soul's descent to this world being clothed within an animal soul deriving from the klipa and sitra achra, the very antithesis of the divine soul. Since they will not be able to banish the animal soul throughout their lives, nor even dislodge it from its place in the left part of the heart, so that no evil imaginings rise from it to the brain. The question is, what is the purpose in creating the benemi? As he said earlier, the Benini is condemned to remain a Benini. He's condemned to struggle. He's condemned to live in darkness. So here the Benini is busy lighting up the world through Torah and mitzvot, 
and yet his soul remains completely dark. What is, what's the purpose? How is it possible that each and every one of us has the power to create so much light in this world, and yet we remain black and dark inside? We don't feel. We remain unchanged. As you just said, you can, do a, you can live a life of Torah and mitzvah. You can behave a certain way. You, have, you can discipline yourself. Mind over matter. You have the presence of mind. You can live a disciplined life. There are millions of people who lead disciplined lives. So this is a spiritual diet, a disciplined spiritual diet. A wholesome diet. You have the discipline, the awareness, the presence of mind, the resolve, and to carry through. You have the maturity the adult level of maturity to carry through consistently on your resolution to live a disciplined life. And yet, internally you remain unchanged. You don't have the power. You cannot access your inner subconscious. You don't have the power. So your your natural self remains unchanged. But you remain with all your temptation and all your desire you think a person who leads a disciplined life, a disciplined diet, I think after 20 years, he wouldn't be tempted to eat that juicy, uh, juicy hot dog or whatever it is. I mean, it, the nature is there. But you discipline yourself and you do the right thing and you forswear junk food and you stay away from it. But to say that there's been a core change and you're not tempted to eat... And, Let's not kid ourselves. And the same is true spiritually. Even the Jew lives a disciplined life. And you could live your entire life. Decades can go by. And you haven't thought a single thought that's wrong. And you haven't thought a single, you haven't spoken a single, you haven't uttered a single word that's wrong. And you haven't done a single act that's wrong. But the temptation is still there. Decades later, you're still tempted. Patience is there. You haven't changed. It hasn't been a core change. It's not within your power to change your core nature. So why does the so if the Bainley is condemned to this darkness and he simply doesn't have the power to change and he can go through his entire life and life will be a constant struggle, then what's the purpose? What's the point? How could you bring so much light while you remain in darkness. It's a very troubling, troubling question. It's a very personal question. Inasmuch as in the Benonim the essence of the animal soul derived from the klipa remains in its full strength and potency as at birth, except that its garments, i.e. its forms of expression as evil thought, speech, and action, do not close themselves in their body, as mentioned above. In chapter 12, where the Alter Rebbe explains that by means of constant battle with his animal soul, the Benoni prevents the budding evil of this soul from expressing itself in his thought, speech, and action. However, since the Benoni succeeds only in suppressing the garments of the animal soul, but can never, despite all his efforts, effect any change in the essential evil nature of the animal soul itself, the question arises, 
Why then did their souls descend to this world, to strive in vain, God forbid, waging war all their lives against their evil inclination, yet never being able to vanquish it? The obvious question is, we just learned earlier in chapter 33, and we learned earlier in chapter 27, we know the purpose, we know the reason why the Benini has to struggle. Although you're condemned to the struggle for the rest of your life. As a matter of fact, he said, he explained that that's a reason for tremendous joy. When you realize that through your struggle, you are defeating the forces of darkness. Through your inner struggle, through your inner wrestling match with the forces, inner forces of darkness. By you overcoming the inner forces, your own, your own inner forces of darkness, you also cause, the, you vanquish the forces of darkness in the world. And you give Hashem tremendous pleasure that you've overcome the darkness, you've triumphed over the darkness, that you have struggled and you've triumphed. And in a certain sense, that's even a sweeter, a sweeter victory. And it's a sweeter pleasure. It gives Hashem such pleasure, even greater than the pleasure of the tzaddik. It's two different pleasures. There is the pleasure of the tzaddik, the one who has completely transformed himself. But then there's the pleasure of the rest of us, 99.9% of us that have to deal with the darkness and struggle the darkness and engage with the darkness. And yet we have, we we're able to overcome the darkness. And by overcoming the, the arrogance and overcoming the, the darkness, we bring so much light into this world and we give Hashem infinite pleasure, indescribable pleasure. So he already answered this question. What's he asking? What's his question? He's coming up with a new question. Why does the Benini struggle? Why is the Benini condemned to struggle? Since he can never truly overcome, can never truly change or transform himself, what's the purpose of the struggle? What's the purpose of his life? What does he have to look forward to? He already answered this question at great length. And he answered, not only shouldn't you be despondent, shouldn't you, be, shouldn't you despair or feel sad, then what's the point? If I can never change, it's a, it's a losing battle. He says, no, God forbid, not only is it not a losing battle, every time you overcome, every time you bend your nature, every time you overcome and you push yourself beyond your nature, every time you overcome a difficulty, you give Hashem such infinite, indescribable pleasure. So if that's your mission in life, for the rest of your life to be able to give Hashem such indescribable pleasure, wonderful, that's my mission in life. It's a battle, life is a struggle, it's a war. Life is war. It's war between good and evil and light and dark, truth and lies, and you, by you, standing up. Because truth eventually will triumph, but truth needs a little help. Truth needs for you to have the courage to stand up for the truth. So by you standing up for the truth and having the guts and the courage and the strength to to choose right over wrong, to choose good over evil, to choose light over darkness, and you overcome your inner darkness, you're you're winning the war, you're giving God tremendous nachas, tremendous pleasure, indescribable pleasure. The joy is indescribable. And you rejoice with God's joy. So that's that's your mission, that's your purpose. So what's the question here? What's he asking here? The Rebbe explains his question here is that the explanation that the Rebbe gave earlier that life is a battle, life is a conflict and our mission in life is to defeat the enemy and overcome and win the war uh, overcome every time, every time we every battle is precious, infinitely precious. That only explains, that would explain if 
the light and the darkness within us were like two separate forces, just like in a war. The enemies are facing each other, but they're separated. There's a battle line, and they're separated. The enemy's on one side, and you're on the other side. And by you defeating the enemy, you, you give Hashem tremendous nachas, tremendous pleasure. But the, within us, the light and the darkness are commingled, they're intermingled, they're connected. It's not like two sides, two separate sides. The light, which is the, the, the divine soul, is actually expresses itself through the ego, through the natural soul, the animal soul within us. So the two are connected, the two are, are, one is within the other. The godly soul has to operate through and together with the animal soul, with the ego. It's not like this, the godly soul, the divine soul is in one place and the animal soul is in the other place. Were the emphasis of Judaism to be, like religion, the emphasis would be on meditation. Then the divine soul expresses itself through meditation, through spirituality. When it comes to meditation and spirituality and that in that the animal soul has no connection so anything that's materialistic is connected to the ego anything that's sublime and spiritual and intense and deep and, 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 and uh, musical and beautiful that has to do with the divine soul so then the analogy fits then it's like two different forces two different camps two different parts within you you have the love within you and you have the soulfulness within you and you have the religiosity within you and you have the intensity and the depth and the colorfulness within you and the philosophy and the insight that's the divine that belongs to the divine then you have the coarse the natural the materialistic that belongs to the other side the ego and there's a struggle and there's a clash and by overcoming this struggle by overcoming this clash that's how you give Hashem tremendous nachas. But now that we've established that the whole emphasis of Judaism is on action, how do you do action? Who does the action? Your soul doesn't do the action per se, alone. Your soul can't do the action. The action is done with your body, with your physical, with your ego, with your natural self. So the godly soul has to operate through the ego. Not only to to defeat the ego. The, the godly soul must use the ego. You have, to, you have to use the enemy. You have to use the ego. The natural self, the natural soul. So that's the question. What's the point? What's the purpose? Why did Hashem create, create the Beni in such a way that the, the divine soul, in order for the divine soul to express its divine connection, it must work through its ego? It has to enclose itself. It has to express itself through its ego, using its ego. So the question is, why? What's the point? Because since only the divine soul is touched by the divine, the divine is touched by the divine. But since the ego remains unchanged and untouched through that experience, because you can go through your entire life doing Torah, doing mitzvot, using your body, using your physical nature, using your ego, your natural soul, and yet your natural soul remains untouched, unmoved, unchanged, remains the same at its core, at its essence, remains completely unchanged, unrefined. It's still attracted to, un- un- to um, self-destructive behaviors. It's still attracted to unwholesome behaviors. 
and you have to constantly struggle with it. It remains untouched and unaffected and unchanged by that divine experience, by doing the mitzvah. So what's the point? Wouldn't it be easier for the divine, the divine spark within you, to touch the divine through something divine? Meditation, religiosity, intensity, spirituality. But the emphasis is on the action, the deed. The only way to really touch the divine is through the deed. That means the divine soul has to operate through and has to work through its enemy, through the, atri- the animal soul, natural, and then the animal soul remains completely unaffected and untouched and unmoved and unchanged by that whole experience. So what's the point? It seems to be, a, it just exhausts you. What's the point? It's like teaching a student that you know beforehand that you're never going to get through that student. You're never going to reach that student. You're never going to change that student. You're never going to reach that student. It's very frustrating. Why am I spending all this effort trying to reach a student that I know I can't reach? He doesn't speak the language. He doesn't understand what you're talking about. It makes no sense to him. He's not interested. He couldn't care less. So here you're pouring all this Herculean, massive amounts of effort and energy in getting the animal soul to do Torah and to do mitzvah day in and day out in thought, speech, and action, the emphasis on action, and the, div- and the animal soul remains completely untouched, uninspired, couldn't care less. It remains the same behemoth, the same animal it was when you started out decades ago, years ago, weeks ago, months ago. Unchanged, unrefined. That's the fact. We do not have the power to change. All the Torah and the mitzvot in the world do not have the power to change our animal soul. We are still attracted to the same things. We're still tempted by ego. Money, power, fame still talks to us. After decades of learning Torah and mitzvot, you think rabbis who study Torah for, for, for 20, 30 years, you don't think they're tempted by honor and they don't have healthy egos? just because they sit and study Torah all day and they've done the right thing and they never did anything wrong and never spoke Lashon Hara and never said a lie. You know, money still talks to you. Like it says in Ethics of Our Fathers, there are three things that destroy a person. Jealousy, envy, kina, taiva, attraction, physical attraction, and covenant, honor. So ethics of our fathers, the rabbis are discussing in, in, in levels. First you start out as a child. Children are jealous. You have, I want to have. You possess, I want to have. When you're youthful, you're jealous of everyone. You want to have what everyone else has. You want, you want goodies. You want what everyone else has. And you get a little older, a little more mature. That's when you start indulging. You want to indulge. You want to pursue pleasures. You want to indulge in every pleasure in life. And you get a little older... That's not your, your heat, your intensity, your, your, your indulgence. Maybe diminishes a little. What's your new Yetzirah? What's your new evil inclination? Honor. Power. Fame. Respect. You see, when people make their billions and they go into politics, now they want to spend their money, now they're looking for something greater. Now they want honor, they want position, they want power, they want to be in the limelight, they want to be remembered. So just because a person externally is doing everything that's right and looks righteous and is acting righteous, he has a healthy ego and he cares about his honor and is egotistical and remains unchanged, unrefined, unaffected, self-absorbed, egotistical. 
So the question is, what's the point? What's the point? Why is my entire focus of my divine service is that I must work with my animal soul? Not only defeat my animal soul, but I must work with my animal soul. And with, through my animal soul. Because that's the only way I can connect with the divine. By doing a mitzvah. That's the, that's the emphasis. The mitzvah, the action, the deed. And the only way to do the action is through the physical, the body, the ego, the natural self, the natural self. So why am I pouring this massive amount of energy into this effort when it doesn't accomplish anything? What does it accomplish? I remain unchanged. My core remains unchanged. My essence remains unchanged. My ego remains unchanged, unrefined. On the contrary, the more Torah you study, the more arrogant you become. The more egotistical you become. I'm so prominent. I'm so special. I'm so important. So if the animal soul remains unaffected, then what's the point? That's a very troubling question. That question he hasn't addressed. He hasn't hasn't answered this question. If the whole purpose is to defeat the animal soul, then the two should be apart, should remain apart. I should connect to the divine by doing divine things, or spiritual things. I have no connection to the animal soul. And I should defeat the animal soul. But if the whole emphasis is even the emotions are just there in order to inspire me to do the action, which means to engage my animal soul, and my animal soul remains completely unaffected by it, unchanged, unmoved, so what's the point? It makes no sense. That's the question that the Alter Rebbe is asking. Okay, you want to you wanna continue? It was explained. It was explained in the previous chapter that the ongoing battle waged by the Benoni in preventing his evil inclination from asserting itself in thought, speech, and action causes prodigious pleasure above. How then can we complain that the battle is in vain? Yet, were this divine pleasure the sole object of the battle, there would be no reason for having the divine soul clothed within the animal soul. On the contrary, the two souls ought then be separate and distinct from each other, so that whenever the divine soul emerges victorious from a particular struggle against the desire of the animal soul to act or speak evilly, it would then act alone without the participation of the animal soul. Since the divine soul is clothed within the animal soul, the objective obviously lies in perfecting the animal soul itself. From this perspective, the battle of the Benodi does not seem futile, since all his efforts have no effect on the evil nature of the animal soul. That's the question. It's a very, very good question. Okay, now the Al-Tarebi begins, starts to answer the question. Let this forthcoming explanation be their solace, to comfort them in a double measure of aid and to gladden their hearts in God who dwells amongst them in their Torah and divine service, i.e. the explanation will show them how to find comfort and joy in the godly light that abides within them when they study the Torah and when they engage in the service of God. He's going to explain that it's only through the action and through their serving Hashem through Torah and mitzvot that's the only way you bring Hashem's shechina, you bring Hashem's presence into this world you draw down Hashem's presence into this world and therefore that should be their comfort that should be the solace that although our soul remains dark our being remains dark 
our core and essence of our animal soul remains dark, but nevertheless, the fact that we have the ability to bring so much light into this world, a lifetime of light, each and every one of us could generate such an astounding amount of light, so much of Hashem's light into this world, we can bring down that light into this world. So that will be our comfort. The, the pain is still there, just like you comfort someone when, when someone passes away. The pain is there, but you're trying to comfort them. So, yes, the pain is there because it's very painful that we have the ability to bring so much light into the world, and yet our souls remain dark. But knowing that we have that ability to bring so much of Hashem's light into this world, that should be our comfort. And now he's going to explain. The above-mentioned difficulties will be resolved by clarifying first the comment of the Yenuka, quoted in the Zohar, Parshat Balak, on the verse, The wise man's eyes are in his head. So Shlomo Amela says, King Solomon says, that the wise man's eyes are in his head. I mean, obviously, King Solomon, the wisest of all men, we don't need King Solomon to tell us <laughs> that the person's eyes are in his head. Where else are his eyes? The back of his head? I mean, obviously. So what the Wakan Shlema Mel possibly mean? So the explanation must be The Zohar comments, where else are a man's eyes? Surely then the meaning of the verse is as follows. We have learned that a man must not go four cubits while bareheaded. Why? Because the Shekhinah, the divine presence, rests upon his head. Therefore, every wise man has his eyes, i.e., his interest and concern, and hence also his speech, concentrated in his head i.e. in that light of the Shekhinah which rests and abides above his head. So when he says that a wise man, his eyes are in his head, he doesn't mean literally. He means, where's his focus? He takes, he takes notice, he focuses what's in on the head. Why does a person walk around with a yarmulke? Why is a person obligated to always walk around with a yarmulke? You know where the word yarmulke comes from? It's actually made up of two words. Yare. Malka, you're afraid, you're in awe of Malka, the king of Hashem. Yarmulka. So why does a person walk around with a yarmulke on his head? Because of the Shekhinah that rests on his head. The Shekhinah always hovers on our head. And out of respect for the Shekhinah, out of respect for Hashem's presence, we place a yarmulke on our head. It shows us that there's something greater than our mind. We don't worship, Jews don't worship their minds. We don't think that we're God. There's something greater than even our own minds. As brilliant as we may be, there's something above us, something greater than us, greater than all of us put together. It's right in front, right on top of us. And therefore, out of humility, for the presence of Hashem, that's right in front of us, right on top of us in our heads, we cover our heads. Women don't cover their heads. Uh, unmarried women don't have to cover their heads. Don't wear yarmulkes. Married women cover their heads for other reasons, for the cover their hair, for modesty. But they don't cover their heads because they don't need that yarmulke to... They don't need anything external to remind them. Their whole being, their whole essence is in touch with that faith. A woman embodies... And the word amuna in Hebrew is in the feminine. Because she embodies that faith. She's the epitome of it. She lives it. She breathes it. For a man, is much more abstract. And therefore, we need something physical, just like we need physically a talit. We need physically a tefillin uh, to connect us or to rewaken us up or to remind us. Or A woman doesn't need it. 
Just like we don't need tefillin on Shabbat. Even a man doesn't need tefillin on Shabbat. If a, if a man will decide to put on tefillin on Shabbat, not only is it a desecration of Shabbat, it's a desecration of tefillin. When the Torah says you don't need something, the Torah is not depriving you, but I want to put on tefillin on Shabbat. The Torah is not depriving us of tefillin. The Torah is telling us on Shabbat you don't need tefillin. The Shabbat is such a holy day. The Sabbath is such a holy day. You don't need tefillin to remind you that you're holy. The day itself reminds you. So when the Torah says that a woman doesn't need to put on tefillin, the Torah is not depriving a woman of the opportunity of putting on tefillin. The Torah is saying that you don't need the tefillin. It's like Rosh Hashanah that falls out on Shabbat. The Torah says you don't blow shofar. Can you imagine? It's like telling a Jew, sit down to the Seder and don't eat matzah. Rosh Hashanah is all about blowing the shofar. How can you have a Rosh Hashanah without blowing the shofar? And yet the Torah says, Rosh Hashanah, the falls on a Shabbat, you don't blow the shofar. Because Shabbat, you don't need the shofar. Whatever the shofar will accomplish the Shabbat, the holiness of the Shabbat will accomplish whatever the shofar could accomplish. The Torah is not depriving us. So when the Torah says that a woman doesn't need to put on the talus and the tefillin, doesn't need to physically hold the Torah and to be called up to the Torah to get an aliyah, which literally means to be uplifted, is because she is uplifted without physically holding on to the Torah or physically wearing the yarmulke or the talus and the tefillin. And it's only because of a lack of an understanding and a lack of appreciation, just like a Jew who would put on tefillin on Shabbat. It's only because of ignorance, because the Jew simply doesn't know and doesn't appreciate what Shabbat is all about. Because it's truly a, an insult to Shabbat and it's an insult to Tfilin. So it's only because of a lack of knowledge and lack of understanding that a, that a woman would insist, no, I want to put on talit and I want to put on Tfilin. Because if you appreciate, when the Torah says that you don't have to do something, the Torah is not taking anything away, the Torah is not depriving, the Torah is telling a woman she's the epitome of faith, she doesn't need anything physical to remind her. A man could be standing in talith and tefillin all his life and he'll never feel as close to Hashem as a mother when she gives birth to her child. And she participates in the miracle of creation. Only God has the power to create. Angels don't have that power. The only one He gave that power to is to a woman. So you want to feel intimate with Hashem? Do you want to feel close to Hashem? That's the closest you get. So she has the idea of a yarmulke without wearing the yarmulke. But the idea is that on, on every one of our heads, the shechina is present. And that's why we wear the yarmulke, we cover our heads. Out of respect, and to honor, and out of humility for the presence of Hashem shechina. So that's what the verse means, that's what King Solomon means. The wisest of all men is telling us that the wise man is someone wears his eyes, wears his focus. What does he notice? He notices the head, what's on top of the head, Hashem's presence which is on top of our head. And continue. Now, when his eyes, i.e. his interest and concern, are there, he must know that this light kindled above his head, i.e. the light that shines upon his soul, requires oil. For man's body is the wick, that retains the luminous flame, and the light is kindled above it. And thus King Solomon cried out, saying, quote, Let there be no lack of oil above your head, end quote. For the light over his head requires oil, meaning good deeds. The good deeds that man performs are the oil, which supplies the light illuminating his soul. 
and for this reason the wise man's eyes are in his head, to ensure that he never lacks oil, good deeds, that is, for this light. So just like any light, in order to have fire, in order to have light, you need a wick. But the wick would burn up very quickly. Also, a wick is not really good for fire. The the material of the wick is very coarse. It doesn't give off a good fire. Just like when you burn, when you burn the wick, there's actually, if you look, notice, there's actually different colors in the fire, different types of fires. You have the blue part of the fire, which is close to the wick, a darker, and then you have the pure fire, the red, which actually comes from the oil, because the material of the wick is not really good material for burning. The wick per se would burn very quickly, and, and, and it doesn't, it's not really good material for burning. Oil is good material for burning. And that's why when you have a wick and you have oil, the wick can go for as long as, as, long as you have oil. The wick can light and light and light and light and go as long as you have enough oil. So too, the light of the Shekhinah that hovers on our head, that hovers over us, that light needs feeding. You have to feed that light. We are the wick. The light is the Shekhinah, Hashem Shekhinah. That's the fire, that's the light. But in order to feed the, to feed the light, you need oil. And what is the oil? The Zohar says. The oil is the good deeds, the mitzvah. The physical deed, the mitzvah, the physical act. That's the oil that sustains the fire. And that's the wise man. The wise man keeps his eye on the fire, on the light above the head. And he knows and he realizes, how do I keep this fire going? How do I keep the light going? I need to provide the oil. I need to provide the mitzvah, the good deeds, to sustain this light. This is what the most brilliant of all men is teaching us to look carefully and to realize that we are the wick and Hashem's Shekhinah hovers over us. Hashem's presence hovers over us. And that's why we wear the yarmulke. And that we would want to sustain that fire. And how do we sustain that fire? Through good deeds. Okay, now he's going to explain this parable because it really doesn't make any sense. The meaning of this analogy, comparing the light of the Shekhinah to the light of a candle is clear to every intelligent person, as the Alter Rebbe will conclude shortly, after a closer examination of its details. Just as it is true of the candle's flame, that it does not shed light, nor is it retained by the wick without oil, by nature fire strains upward. It will not remain below unless restrained by a wick or wood, for example. But a wick alone is rapidly consumed, and the fire vanishes quickly. Moreover, the burning wick produces a dim and smoky light, for it consists of material insufficiently refined to be completely absorbed by the flame. Oil, on the other hand, is completely transformed into the flame and absorbed by it. Burning steadily, it produces a clear and pure light.
This is what is meant by the Alter Rebbe's statement that without oil, the flame of the candle, A, does not shed light, B, nor is it retained by the wick. Returning now to the point of the analogy. Similarly, the Shekhinah does not rest upon man's body, which is compared to a wick, except through man's performing good deeds. The body can only act as a wick, not as oil. It is a coarse, physical being, which will not be absorbed within the light of the Shekhinah, but will always remain separate from it. The good deeds that man performs provide the oil. It is evident from the Zohar, however, that one soul, although a part of God above, is insufficient to serve as oil for the wick. A question is implied here. Why should the soul itself divine, and thus certainly suited to being absorbed within the light of the Shekhinah, require anything external, such as good deeds, to serve as oil for that light? Surely the soul itself should constitute the oil. But the reason for this, the Alter Rebbe now concludes the sentence begun earlier with the words, quote, the meaning of this analogy, end quote, is clear and understandable to every intelligent person. So this needs a lot of clarification, a lot of understanding, a lot of explanation, because in the analogy, why does the fire burn well when it has oil? While if all you have is the wick, A, the fire is extinguished very quickly, and even when the fire lasts, the brief time the fire lasts, it's a very dim light, it's a dark light. While when you have oil, it lasts as long as the oil lasts, and it's a very clear light. Why? Because oil is refined, while the wick is coarse. Well, in the, in the, uh, in the nimshal, you would think it would be just the opposite. You would think that the soul, which is refined, which is divine, a piece of the divine essence, the soul should be the oil to sustain the light, to sustain the shechina. The deed, the action, is coarse, is materialistic. You're putting on tefillin, you're doing a mitzvah, it's physical, it's, it's something tangible, it's very materialistic. You would think that the mitzvah should be compared to the wick, and the love of the soul, and the meditation, and the deep reflection, and intensity, and religiosity, and spirituality, that should be the oil. And yet, it's the reverse. What is the oil that sustains the fire and sustains the light? It's the deed. While the soul and the spirituality and the meditation and the sensitivity and the intensity and the understanding and the insight, all of that is, like, is nothing. It's like the wick. It cannot sustain the fire. It will quickly extinguish and it's not a vessel for the fire. So does that make sense? The soul is not a vessel for the fire. And the body, the physical, material, good deed, that is a vessel for the Shekhinah, for the divine. It's the exact opposite of the way it appeared. So how do you understand? Makes no sense. That's what the Alter Rebbe is going to explain now. The Alter Rebbe will now proceed to explain why good deeds can serve as oil for the light of the Shekhinah whereas the divine soul cannot. The explanation in brief. 
Man's soul is not, after all, completely nullified before God and one with him to the extent that it is capable of becoming absorbed within the godly light. This is true even of the soul of the tzaddik, who serves God with the loftiest forms of love and fear. Indeed, it is the soul's very love of God that emphasizes its separateness. For love entails two separate entities, the lover and the beloved. Similarly with fear, there is one who fears and another who is feared. Only good deeds, mitzvot, which as the Alter Rebbe will explain further on, are completely one with God, can therefore serve as the oil, which is absorbed within the flame of the light of the Shekhinah that is kindled over man. What he's going to explain is on the contrary. Why is oil the right material to sustain the fire? Because oil could be absorbed within the flame, while the wick is not truly absorbable within the flame. It's coarse, it's thick, it's not really absorbable within the flame. So firstly, it goes out right away, and it's a very dull fire. It's not really appropriate material. You want to really sustain the flame, and you want to have a beautiful flame, you have to refine the right material that can be easily absorbed within the flame. Because how do you have fire? Fire, you release the energy, right? Within the matter, you transform the matter into energy. So but you have to have the right type of material. The right type of material beautifully is able to be transformed into energy and become part of energy and to release the energy within it in a beautiful way. Not all material are alike. Some materials are more easily transformed and are, could become part of the flame. And some materials are just coarse and dense and not really, it's not a good fire. Everything burns, but it's not a good fire. It doesn't sustain, and it's just a smoky fire. It's just it's not a, a beautiful fire. Uh, oil could become absorbed within the fire in a beautiful way, in a smooth way. And that's the limitation of the soul. A soul, no matter how sublime, no matter how deep, no matter how spiritual, the most the highest levels of consciousness, the most mind-blowing experience, the most intense spiritual experience, the most sublime music, the most exotic art, the most intense love, cannot truly become absorbed in the divine. They're not the right material. Because what is the divine? The divine is godliness. And there's no other reality but God. Spirituality is not God. Spirituality is not divine. And even the most spiritually intense experience there is the person who's experiencing this experience. So there's an ego. There's someone apart from God. There's something outside of God that's experiencing this intense love, this intense attraction, this ecstasy, this yearning for Godliness. So there's a separate entity from God. Yeah, it's no longer, it's not God. It's not God. 
and it can, can, cannot become absorbed within godliness. It interferes. So it's not oil. It's not good material. It doesn't burn. It doesn't burn well. It cannot become absorbed within the flame. Because it's not one with the flame. Only the mitzvah, the actual deed itself, the good deed, the mitzvah, when you do the mitzvah, that becomes absorbed within God. Because the mitzvah is divine. The mitzvah is godly. A mitzvah is God's communication to us. Yes, Hashem chose physical things from our world. Simple, practical, physical things. But the mitzvah is divine language. And that's the only way we can communicate with the divine. We have no other way. There is no other way. From our point of view, from our perspective, from our end, there's an unbridgeable gap between us and God. We don't have the language to communicate with God. Not through love and not through philosophy and not through insights and not through spirituality and not through meditation, not through higher levels of consciousness. All the spirituality in the world all put together in the higher realms and the angelic realms. There's no communication. We don't speak God's language. We don't even begin to speak God's language. The deepest, most intense spiritual experience doesn't even get us one iota closer to the divine. On the contrary, it's a direct contradiction to the divine. Because if the divine is godly, and there's no other reality but God, the moment you're having this intense experience, there's a you who's having this intense experience. That's already a contradiction to the truth and the essence of the divine, of Godliness, Which completely transcends our whole frame of reference, our whole reality. There's no other reality but God. And that's not something that we can possibly perceive or possibly comprehend. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. It's unapproachable. But Hashem, out of His infinite mercy, communicated with us. He gave us lines of communication. He says when a woman lights a Shabbos candle right before Shabbos, not on Wednesday night, no, if you light a Shabbos candle on Wednesday night, it may feel good, it makes you feel good, but it means absolutely nothing. But I'm going skiing Friday. I have to do it Friday, Wednesday night. Let's, bring, let's make turn Wednesday night into Shabbos. <laughs> doesn't... It means absolutely nothing. When you light a candle, when Hashem asks you to light a candle, when the code of Jewish law says, now is the right time to light a candle, and this is how you do it. And the mitzvot are very precise. It's amazing. Every mitzvah has a lot of details, how it has to be done. And if it's off by one detail, it's not a mitzvah. It's maybe a religious symbol, it makes you feel good, but it has nothing to do with the divine. This is not the divine language. Hashem gave us a divine language. And he says, you know, if you do this mitzvah exactly at this and this time, exactly this and this way, with all the details, that's the language. That, that's how you touch me. That's how you touch the divine. And it could be something prosaic, something practical, something simple, something every day. But when you do that mitzvah, when you take a coin, you reach your hand in your pocket and you take a coin and you give it to tzedakah, Hashem says, you're touching the divine. Now you're touching. Now you're talking my language. The words of Torah when Hashem speaks the words of Torah, when Hashem is quoting the words of Bilam, or, but when Hashem quotes these words in the Torah, now it becomes holy. It's divine communication. Hashem has given us a way to touch Him. He has given us a path to touch Him. So the mitzvot are divine. The mitzvot are God's language. And therefore when you do a mitzvah, that's the oil. 
that can become absorbed within the fire, within the flame, and it could be transformed into the flame and sustain the flame. So the mitzvah could sustain the flame and could be changed into the flame, while the wick, the soul, the divine soul, cannot, does not have the ability to become one with God. And with this he explains why it's important to do mitzvah. Why does a person need mitzvah? The person has a divine soul. We already are connected with God. It's an innate connection. It's an inherent connection. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. You're born Jewish. You're as Jewish as you'll ever be the moment you're born. You already have that divine core, the divine essence. Why is it important to do mitzvah? That's, what the, that's the brilliance of King Solomon's statement. The wise man understands because he looks at the light that's on your head. The Shekhinah. And he knows and he understands that the only way to sustain this light, the divine soul within you does not have the ability to bring the Shekhinah into this world. The only way to sustain the light. What is the oil that could sustain the light and sustain the flame and be transformed into the divine and bring light, the light of Hashem into this world? It's only through the mitzvah, through the good deed. You have to act. You have to actively lead a Jewish life. It's not enough to be a good Jew at heart, but to be a good Jew in your head, but to be a good Jew in your soul. The wise man understands this. The most brilliant man of all men is telling us this. Open your eyes. Look at the shechina. Look at the light on your head and realize that it needs oil. And the only way you could sustain this oil, the only way you could bring the light of Hashem into this world is only through action. By actively leading an active Jewish life. Not only thinking like a Jew and speaking like a Jew, but acting like a Jew. And doing the mitzvah. The 630 mitzvah in our daily lives. That is the only way. And that's the oil that sustains the light. And that's the oil that could be transformed. Why could the mitzvah be transformed? Because the mitzvah itself is divine. It's Hashem's language. It's holy. It's divine. It's God. While the soul, as great as the soul is, as spiritual as the soul is, the soul simply cannot become one with God. Because the soul, by its very definition, is already outside of God. It's not divine. And that's counterintuitive. And it goes contrary to all religious and mystical systems. This is the exact opposite of everything that religion and mysticism teaches. That's why this was revelation. That's why Mount Sinai is called revelation. It was a revelation, a startling revelation. That's why even the angels rebelled against Mount Sinai. They couldn't comprehend this concept. That the deed is what matters most. The action is what matters most. The action is the end and the spirituality is only a means to the end. The exact opposite of the way we, we conventionally understand religion. That the deed is merely the means and the spirituality, the religiosity, the intensity, the awareness, that's the end. Comes along the wisest of all men and says, no. It's the exact opposite. It's the deed, it's the action, it's the active life of a Jew, living like a Jew, doing the mitzvah. That's the oil. That's what sustains the Shekhinah. That and only that. That's the only language we have. 
that's the oil that could sustain the light and bring Hashem, bring down Hashem's light into this world and illuminate this world, sustain the light. Where does spirituality fit in this? Because I can understand how doing a mitzvah is divine because it, it's neutral, it's something in and of itself. But where does spirituality fit in this? Because when you do something good for us, you're doing what God does. Well, when spirituality is the motivation, a person who's spiritual is a person who's open. A person is open to change, a person is open to grow, a person is open... So a person who's spiritual is more open. But the danger of spirituality is if it becomes an end in itself. You get hooked on spirituality. You get stranded in outer space. And you forget what it's all about. And it's very selfish. Sitting on the mountaintop, sitting on the mountaintop and meditating all day is, is actually a very selfish act. The ultimate selfish act. Spirituality is the ultimate, ultimate ego trip. It's very satisfying. It's more satisfying than all the money, power, and fame in the world put together. A person who, who's, really, uh, who's really a master could be the ultimate ego trip. So you're stranded in outer space. You forget what it's all about. You forget that God is not spirituality. What Hashem needs of us, what Hashem wants us, is the mitzvah. That's the connection. And it's the soul that's elevated through the mitzvah. When you do a mitzvah, but you pour your whole heart and soul into the mitzvah, you're focused on the mitzvah. Your heart is on fire as a result of the mitzvah. You do the mitzvah passionately. You do the mitzvah with intent. Your soul is on fire with the mitzvah. Then the soul is elevated through the mitzvah. Because the mitzvah is divine, and the soul achieves a tremendous elevation. The soul touches the divine through the mitzvah. Like the beautiful parable of Shemtan, the wise man and the simple man who had an appointment with the king. They were invited to the king's palace. And the wise man gets, gets caught up in the majesty and the grandeur of the palace, and he, he misses his appointment with the king. He's drinking in the architecture, he's drinking in the beauty and the gardens and the paintings, and, and he forgets about the king. So he got so caught up in the external, and the grandeur, which is just a projection of the king, that he forgets the main event. The simple person knows from nothing. He goes straight to the king. So at the end of the day, who's connected? Who's more ahead? Who's ahead? The person who's sitting and talking with the king for three hours. Because when you have the king, you have everything that comes with the king. So the religious person and the mystical person, the spiritual person, could get so caught up in God's projection of His majesty and angelic and higher levels of consciousness that He confuses that and misses, misses the whole point, forgets about the King. While when you do the mitzvah, when you physically do the mitzvah, when you stick your hand in your pocket and give tzedakah and you physically light the candles and you eat the matzah and you put on the tefillin and you actively lead a Jewish life, an active Jewish life, you have the King, you're touching the divine, you're connected. I'd like to know this, and this is what I find disturbing. We have architecture, we have music, we have ballet, we have theater, we have literature, we have a limitless expression of creativity. I want to know, what if somebody is born into you know, a life of observance and the understanding that ultimately it's doing good that matters and that all else, I don't know, commentary to quote, 
another source. Um, I think once a child has that ability to be a great architect and to build edifices and that glorify and that enable people to connect to, to beauty and so on of expression in this world, I want to know, is, is there in the observance of Judaism, as I understand from what you've explained, does it in some way put a limitation a war between the Jew who so observes and the other talents that exist in the human being, the genetic, you know, uh, play of the cards that makes somebody uh, uh, hear music in their mind and then compose for the piano or the violin and so on. This, uh, this is something I want to know. It's a very good question. But we had uh, one of our Shabbatons, we had a speaker, his name was Mello Luxemburg. I don't know if you heard his name. Mel Luxemburg, he was then, I don't know if he still is, he was the chairman of the art department in Pratt University, the largest art department in the world. Uh, he was a Jew with a beard. He never graduated art school. He's considered one of the greatest, uh, recognized as one of the greatest artists in the world today. He developed computer art. He's like very advanced in computer art. He, re- he has... Um, permanent exhibits in over 50 museums in the world, including the Metropolitan. He represents Israel internationally. And he grew up in a Hasidic, a Hasidic home. Um, he was, his art education was, in a certain way, limited because he couldn't paint nude, because he lived within the parameters of Jewish law, like any other good Jewish boy or girl. And um, and he explained he, that, that 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 was a theme that he explained to us. That not only didn't it hamper his heart, art, on the contrary, that forced him to develop to become a very revolutionary artist. Because you know it's like when you have a game and there's there's restrictions, but it forces you to compensate in depth. You have to make up for it in depth instead of being superficial. If you could do anything, you know it's skin deep. I can do anything, but it, it, there's no depth there. There's no soul. Yes, there, there, you have to work within a framework. There is a halachic framework that's unbudgeable, but it forces you to go a little deeper, to express your true creativity in a very original way. And um, he has highly developed it. So not only isn't it a contradiction, on the contrary, a person, the more a person is in touch with his Jewishness, the more a person is in touch with his core, with his essence, with the divine, it enhances it amplifies a thousandfold anything good that's going on inside of you. All your energies and all your talents and all your abilities and all your creative abilities. Because don't forget the same God who gave you the Torah and Mitzvot also gave you all those creative abilities. And you are obligated. It's part of your being to develop it. Because nothing, God didn't create in this world anything Randomly, The fact that by divine providence you were designated, you have a certain ability, the only way for you to become a whole person is by expressing every single facet, every single aspect of you. God didn't create a single extra energy ability. So not only isn't it a contradiction on the contrary, this gives you the underpinning, this gives you the focus, this gives you the depth, the connection. Because when you connect it to the divine, the more a Jew is connected to the divine, the more you appreciate the halacha, the more you appreciate, you don't look at the limitations of halacha as restrictions and as limitations. On the contrary, the more you appreciate that the halacha is giving you 
a connection, a touching of the divine. When you're touching the divine, everything within you also comes from the divine. So it only enhances and amplifies whatever is going on inside of you. The faith that Maimonides had did not hamper his intellect. On the contrary, his intellect flourished. He became one of the most powerful intellects that ever lived. Moses, King Solomon, the Rebbe. Look at all the Jewish greats. They were brilliant. They were talented. If anything, their faith and their living within halacha not didn't hamper any single aspect of their personality and character. It only amplified everything positive about them in a thousandfold. And that's true of each and every one of us. That's the challenge of being Jewish. It's to express every God-given creative ability that you have. But do it in the Jewish way. And not only isn't it like compartmentalized, I have my Jewish life and then I have my art and then I have my music. On the contrary, the deeper your connection with the divine, the deeper you'll discover a deeper depth in your art, in your music, in your dancing, whatever your, your talent happens to be. That's the Jewish Total integration. There's one reality. There's one God. There's only one reality. In religion, mysticism, maybe your life is compartmentalized. There's my religious self, my meditative self, and then there's my practical business, career, Western self. In Judaism, there's no compartmentalization. There's one person. There's one God. We're fully enhanced. We're fully integrated. Fully connected. Every part of us. It's not I have my Jewishness and then I have the rest of my life, my career, my talent, my ability. There's this full integration. I'm 100% Jewish, not only on Yom Kippur when I'm standing at the Western Wall, when I'm standing in the synagogue the day I get married. I'm 100% Jewish when I'm in the office. I'm 100% Jewish on a Wednesday afternoon. And it only enhances every aspect of your life. That's, that's the beauty of it. But you have to experience it to, to, to believe it. And that's been our experience for the last 3,800 years. That's why we're still here. We've never left the front pages of history. Because we're so practical and so down to earth and so real. Judaism only makes you more grounded. And as real as, as it comes. As real as it gets. It, it only comes from a lack of appreciation or a lack of understanding. Unfortunately those who did not grow up with the benefit even within the Jewish community those who did not grow up with the benefit of studying the Tanya or studying the Baal or studying Hasidut don't get it and in their mind there has to be a, there's a certain compartmentalization it's like Judaism appears to be more like a religion and very constrictive and very restrictive and it's about suppressing your personality and suppressing your ability but it has nothing to do with Judaism that comes from ignorance. That comes from a lack of studying chasidut, this lack of studying the essence of the Torah. But when we're studying what we're studying here today, it only enhances and amplifies everything that's going on inside. Anything positive. It will suppress all the negativity within us. Thank God for that. But anything positive within us will only amplify, enhance, and a thousandfold. If the mystery is divine... What is the inspiration for the mitzvah? If I say to myself, I want to do a mitzvah now, what I'm saying to myself is not divine. It's all within me, right? But then it becomes a mitzvah. Where is the inspiration for that mitzvah? So the divine soul is inspired and motivated through the mitzvah. Because the divine soul wants to love God and wants to connect with God and pushes you and motivates you to do the mitzvah. Because the divine soul also appreciates 
the beauty of a mitzvah. Rabbi Levi, the great Hasidic master once said, he says, if one tzitzis, if one tzitzis made it to the Garden of Eden, it would, it would nullify the whole Garden of Eden. Because the power of one mitzvah, of one tzitzah, the divine energy, the divine communication, the divine connection of one mitzvah outweighs all the divine inspiration that you get in the Garden of Eden. All the souls will be completely nullified. It will be so powerful they couldn't handle it. The soul understands it. So the soul is motivated and is pushing you. Do the mitzvah. Do the deed. The soul will give up anything just to be able to live one more day, just to be able to do one mitzvah. The soul will give up all the Garden of Eden. Thousands of years being in the Garden of Eden just to be able to come into this world once more to do one mitzvah. Because the soul understands and appreciates the power of the mitzvah, of the physical deed. So that's the inspiration for me. To that's do the, the inspiration. Mitzvah. So the soul is motivating you to the mitzvah. That's why the ultimate goal, the ultimate, and that Rebbe will discuss that later, is the resurrection of the dead. Life in this world. All the souls that are parked in the Garden of Eden, the souls of the patriarchs and the matriarchs that have been in the Garden of Eden for the last 3,700 years, 3,800 years, can't wait to come back into this world, body and soul, to be able to do a mitzvah once again. Because this is the ultimate. The, the, the divine isn't only in this world. And we ultimate. can do them all day long. And we can do them all day long. And the soul appreciates it. So the soul is pushing us. Do the mitzvah. Live a Jewish life. Live an active Jewish life. A halachic Jewish life. Live like a Jew. Appreciate it. Realize the preciousness. Realize that the mitzvah is the oil. And the soul, the soul could only, you know, could only aspire, could, you know, the soul, the only way for the soul to touch the divine is by you physically doing the mitzvah. And this is revolutionary. This is so revolutionary. You all, this is so counterintuitive. This is... That's why it was King Solomon, the wisest of all men, the most brilliant of all men, he had to make that statement. He says, the wise man is the one who looks and realizes that the shechina that hovers over us, the light needs to be fed. And how do you feed that light? It's through the oil. And what's the oil? It's the mitzvah, the deen. The love is not enough. The meditation is not enough. The art, the creativity, the intensity, spirituality, all of that, it's not enough. That's just the means. The mitzvah, the deed is not. 